Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I'm your guest host, Brian Hasty, and joining me today is my regular Double Density co-host, Angelo Fiorentino. Usually on Double Density, we divide our to- episodes up into tech and paranormal topics, but today things are going to be going a little differently. So firstly, Angelo, can you tell people why we're here? We're here to talk about the new MacBook Pro I got. <laughs> I did all the research for this episode using it. It's really great for research. I have to say I like it more than my iPad well, I'm proud of you for trying to bring some double density flavor into our strange guys, but that is not the case here today. So after an incredible, and I, I did a tally when I was talking to Rob about this, he had put out over 80 weekly episodes. Rob decided to flash the bat cryptid signal in the virtual sky, and we elected to help him get some well-deserved time off. So today, thanks to Angelo's careless words early on in our <laughs> podcasting journey, we'll be going all in on the paranormal side to talk about a rather controversial figure in the UFO community. folks. Welcome to the dissection of the life of UFO, quote unquote, debunker, Philip J. Class. Now, Angelo, let's talk about what you said early on in episode seven of the Double Density podcast. You said, and I quote, that Philip J. Class was not that bad of a guy. I think with this episode, we're going to grant you a bit of a redemption arc because you and I have spent countless hours at this point uh, watching interviews, reading books, um, ruminating, um, talking to each other about this man. So are you ready to um, sort of rehabilitate your image in the eyes of many? Well, I still don't think he's that bad of a guy in terms of coming up with prosaic reasons for things that seem to be fantastic at the time. Although He loves the word prosaic, right? Every single instance of like him pushing back saying, you know, I want prosaic explanations for things. Hence me using the word. I think it's imprinted in my brain now from all the reading of his interviews I've done. However, with that said, he could be, uh, let's use the word cantankerous, because in the period when he was responsible for looking at all these UFO cases, he was retired, right? So he was, he was like past his, uh, past the 65th birthday, I think, was when he really started looking at UFO cases. He had some interest before through his work with avionics. But let's say like the his his grand opus of UFO review happened in his later years. I think he came to more public prominence for sure um, in those years. Uh, yeah, no. So let's talk about who he is. Firstly, let's get into his origin story because um, every good supervillain needs a good uh, origin story. He's so not firstly, a supervillain. He's uh, he's like an antihero for ufologists. <laughs> okay, well. Uh, so to make it clear to people who don't listen to Double Density, Angelo on the D and D, you know, uh, traits chart, you know, you're you're, uh, you know, lawful good, right? You're confusing people by saying D and D, and they're going to think Double Density. But you're discussing du- Dungeons and Dragons now. Yes, exactly. Okay. So where do you fall on that chart? You're, you're lawful good. Yeah, like totally. Yeah, the most diplomatic man I know. Yeah. I still uh, going with the supervillain angle. Okay. So firstly, <laughs> Philip Jerome Class is a man who loves his mother. Um, there are multiple instances of him referring to his mother, including um, in the inscription on the 1974 book UFOs Explained, where he says to my tireless proofreader, publicist and mother, Mrs. Raymond and class. And so he mentions his mother um, a lot of times. I don't know. Uh, you find that kind of weird. I don't think that's that weird. I guess, you know, he wanted to have his mom be thanked for all the work she's done. It is weird that he thanks like she's the one he thanks for his book but hey yeah he might have there's been a couple of instances boy. in interviews too where he thanks his mom so whatever <sighs> maybe maybe he was like a good italian boy like me stayed home till like <laughs> their mid-20s mom uh, helped for out. sure yeah so philip julian class was born on november 8th 1919 in des moines iowa you know also home to the band slipknot so you know good tidings to everyone um to his parents raymond class and ann trexler and grew up in cedar rapids iowa so fun fact brian we almost named my son julian uh, oh, I thought that you was his seen. name. No, not Philip, but that was his name for, I don't know, about three hours. And uh, in case no one knows, we, we live in Quebec and the predominant language here is French. And most of the nurses kept calling him Julien. And it sounded uh, like he was uh, had a girl's name. And we decided to change that to what it is now. 
so Philip Class got a BSc in electrical engineering from Iowa State College in 1941 and moved to Washington, D.C. to work. Um, firstly, he worked um, at GE for a while, but then in the early 50s, he moved over to Washington to work as an aerospace reporter at Aviation Weekly, where he held the position of senior editor for 34 years. I don't think there's enough information to create a weekly magazine about planes over and over for dozens of, if not multiple dozens of years. But, you know, here I am um, sort of mentioning that dude was 100 percent horny for plane and aerial technology. Oh, yeah. And that was that's what he used to leapfrog into his joy of looking at UFOs, because once you learn all the stuff that is actually happening, why don't you start looking at things that may be happening? I do like that theory of him just getting bored with all the earthly stuff and thinking about all the tech that is available in the cosmos and then getting mad that he doesn't have access to it, which kind of explains maybe the root of all his anger. Yeah. And little did he know that many years later, all that tech would become iPhones. (laughs) Reverse engineer from Oswald, as I like to say, right? So he has done one cool thing in his life, Angelo, and that is his willingness to release sensitive information to the public. So on the November 18th and 25th, 1957 editions of Aviation Week, he dropped some sensitive government info about protected government plans. And um, thanks to John Greenwald Jr.'s uh, Black Vault, um, so he has a whole section where he drops uh, FOIA requests in PDF format to find out more about things. So um, there are several declassified FBI files that I, I went through uh, dated to 1958. So the Air Force decided... Um, to look into him, and we we're trying to figure out if they were going to press charges on him, kind of revealing sensitive information. But then they realized they could not follow up on him publicly because of the fact that they would have to declassify that information in order to prosecute him. So they dropped that. Sneaky of uh, class there to try and get that to be happening. I, th- I wonder if that the- was. I think I wonder if that was his intention to trick the FBI into getting that stuff declassified. <laughs> that would be an amazing move, actually, just a, a 4D chess move. But no, I don't think that is the case. So he was also watched by the FBI in the 60s because he um, was in regular contact with Soviet figures. And he went to the Soviet embassy um, and things like that, too. So the uh, he told FBI agents early on that he does not disclose who he speaks to to them specifically, um, which kind of gives anti-snitch vibes at the beginning. But that that's going to change later on. We'll get into it. So um, the FBI also in the 60s took a look uh, into the uh, quote unquote unusual amount of radio equipment he owned and checked with the FCC to see if he had a license to broadcast and he did not. What do you what do you think he was doing, though, with that? that equipment? I think he was just an enthusiast, right? Like, okay. you know, he's allowed. He's collecting things as long as he's not broadcasting things and, uh, you know, creating a pirate radio station. Um, Listening conceivably to talk signals. to the aliens above. Possibly. But that is uh, not the case. So, yeah, as I said before, an FBI tangent is incoming, Angelo. So there's also a secret memo in the batch from 1975 because class wrote to and also called with the people who put up the FBI law enforcement bulletin. So this is a, a periodical that the FBI released um, and quote in strong terms laced with sarcasm and quote. And this is from the FBI uh, memo directly. Let them have it for having J. Allen Hynek publish an article about the, the UFO mystery. He goes on to call Hynek a fraud and identifies uh, himself as a true UFO investigator. Yeah, because this was now past his time at Aviation Weekly where he's turning into the, uh, I want to no, say not. like... Actually, no? it's not. No. No? He was, he was senior editor from the 50s, right? Yeah, but didn't, didn't he retire around that point then and became... The, in the uh, early 80s, yeah. Oh, the early 80s. Okay, yeah. so, so he still had this interest in UFOs as he was still working on Avionics Weekly. Yeah, he kind of dovetailed his way out of there. And in, I want to say, 83, 84, I can't remember off the top of my head, he transitioned out, retired, and then focused um, his remaining years, his remaining 20 years uh, on all manners of, of UFO discourse. And him and Hynek were like on and off, like friends every once in a while. No, but of. they were also, no, they were not, I don't, I wouldn't call them friendly. Like, we'll get into that a little bit right now. Yeah. Um, they, so I can't <laughs> believe I'm about to say this one, Angelo, but I'm going to say that the FBI actually did a good job for once. So they responded by reminding class that Hynek had never mentioned that UFOs were extraterrestrial in nature in the article itself or the talks that he gave, because one of his contentions is that, you know, J. Allen Hynek loves to spread around the idea of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. How dare you um, allow him to release this inflammatory information on your pieces of paper? Yeah, this is one of the examples of class jumping to conclusions and kind of putting words in the mouth of the people he doesn't agree with which he does a lot. And that's one of the things that sort of bothers me again. I still think he's okay. And and that'll be my theme for the episode. <laughs> Class sends an article from the national tattler 
from June 1975, claiming that Heineck himself wrote the article and that this is the kind of journalism one gets when UFOs and the FBI are involved. So here's the thing is that the article itself actually wasn't written by Heineck. It was just someone summarizing his article in the FBI bulletin. So that's kind of a nitpicky thing. But, you know, this is a man known for nitpicking. So, you know, you should watch out. So he there's also a set of letters um, in the FOIA request from 1987 where he wrote to the FBI to get more information about the Bureau's use of psychics in investigations. So the Bureau initially replies that they have not studied the use of psychics in investigations. And then class in a classic misdirected gotcha moment demands to know why Noreen Rainier, whose name is blacked out. um, But if you do some quick research, it's revealed that she was the one giving um, uh, lectures at the FBI Academy during this time frame. Um, He also mentions that he talked to an officer at this point who gave a deposition saying that Rainier had spoken um, to classmates. And then class then compares, uh, bringing in a psychic to give a talk to the contentious use of polygraph tests and ask if they allow people who are either against it or work for a polygraph company to come in and lecture about it too. And as far as I can tell, the FBI does not respond. I think they kind of just shoot him away thinking he's like an annoying child that's bothering them with questions that they don't have time to answer because they have lots to do. They have people to spy on. Come on. It's crazy. So the, the FOIA requests all told probably has like 450 pages and most of them are just centered around um, this um, just kind of like copies of memorandums, and then the people just being like, we followed up with him, et cetera, et cetera. I was copied on this. Brian so, loves looking at these FBI things because we spent the whole episode talking about Art Bell and his FBI documents. That is quite true. We Yeah, a couple of months ago, we did that. So um, from Avionics, uh, Aviation Weekly, Class kind of gets interested in the UFO um, phenomena and then fully interested by the mid-60s. Yeah, that's when he was invited to the electrical and electronics engineers panel to discuss UFOs. And he had recently read uh, Incident at Exeter, and he kind of fell in love with the whole phenomenon there. The phenomenon of UFOs, and then a a theoretical explanation of what they were. Yeah, that's so this is where... Where I think Phil Class would have Phil Classed himself if he was if he was on the outside looking in because he came up with this whole theory of ball lightning and plasma being able to explain the majority of UFO cases, which is ridiculous in itself. Explaining one undocumented phenomenon with another undocumented phenomenon is the thing he usually sets out to rail against. But when you're on, you know, there's a bit of cognitive dissonance there when you're on the outside looking in. You can see it, but he's kind of the one trying to propose this theory. And I think he kind of disowned himself from it later on. Yeah, he did. So he um, used the ball lightning slash plasma being theory uh, originally uh, as a way to contextualize what's going on um, in Fuller's book and then kind of tries to apply it to other things or realizes it's not working out. So he drew the ire of everyone in the UFO community because of this. But like both sides too, right? Not just not just the ufologists that are, let's say, let's use the word pro-UFO, which I don't really like, but also the skeptics, because like I said, he's using a theory that's unproven to prove something else that's not proven, which makes no sense. One of my favorite parts of this is the common committee, so that ran from 66 to 68, shut down his ball lighting theory once he started to, to apply to other cases too. So that makes me laugh that an official government body, well, quasi-official, was like, nah, this is not, not how it goes. So... Another interesting thing is he looks into the Lonnie Zamora sighting. So Rob, a couple of years ago, did an episode on that. And uh, that was interesting. So he tries to characterize the Zamora sighting as ball ending, too. And that he believes, also in tandem, um, that it was a hoax, too. So uh, he gave a skeptic interview in the late 90s where um, he mentions that he saw something in local Sakura newspaper at the time stating that, quote, the most efficient way to attract new industry is to first attract tourists, end quotes. He then reveals that the mayor owned the landing site property um, in which the, the Zamora incident happened and wanted to build a new road to the UFO site for tourists. The plan to build the road was only revealed well after the event, and class offers no proof of like pre-sighting collusion, which I think is kind of indicative of if this was pre-planned, if there was a shred of evidence, then like, where is it, right? Because he loves to say, where's the evidence? Show me the evidence. I'll pay you money for the evidence. But this is all just seems in retrospect a a way that he's framing things. It's not actually the case. Yeah, I mean, he alludes to the fact that the property where Zamora saw the UFO was owned by the mayor or something like that. It was this whole weird conspiracy. So again, in this case, he's trying to explain one thing with another thing that's sort of far-fetched using first of all the ball lightning but then the hoax thing which i would say use one or the other and in terms of what's 
more plausible in my eyes would be a hoax versus the ball lightning thing. Zamora saw an egg shaped thing, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What happened to the egg shaped UFOs? I miss those. (laughs) Their time has come and gone. Yeah. It's too bad. I mean, like, Uh, listen, like this is bad news for class, right? So I don't know about you, but I've never been to Socorro, New Mexico. I have no plans to go to Socorro, New Mexico, et cetera. Like it's not nearly as cool as area 51. Like I don't, if this were supposed to be a tourist trap, then like this is a spectacular failure, right? Or, or the uh, vortices of uh, Sedona. Oh yeah. But those exist, man. Energies. Yeah, and I'm not sure. being facetious about that, though I know you are. Yeah, I am. I'm being I'm 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 being classist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to start okay. using that term to describe you to other people and then have to explain the whole thing. Anyways, um, so a problem too is like classes like discounting Zamora's agency and also his believability as a witness, despite the fact that like everyone who met him and said like he's like a no BS kind of guy, very straight shooter. Um, yeah, like, listen, like he Zamora went out on a limb by discussing this. Like He didn't have to say anything. And he felt strong enough in his convictions as to what he saw that he decided to do that. We've never had an answer to what actually happened there, but it is no, but one I mean, of the UFO like, cases that piques my interest in that we really don't know. Yeah, I guess it could have been a hoax, but that's almost as far-fetched as it being aliens in a way. Right. So we just don't know. Like that's, I think that's one of my biggest problems with class as a skeptic. I feel like for me, what I do is if I don't know what something is, I don't try to explain it. I say, I don't know. That's really, think, those are yeah. really important words to have as a skeptic because. Yeah, and we'll get into that later because we yeah. have a whole section about why he's hated and why um, I hate him personally speaking. <laughs> so we'll talk more about that a little bit later, I think. Yeah. So, okay. So how prominent was Phil Class in the UFO discourse? I'd say like pretty prominent in the 70s and 80s. Going well, into he founded Psychop. Oh, well, yeah, is, exactly. Which, uh, according to another article you sent me today, uh, a lot of uh, pro UFO people would call it sick cop. <laughs> which i think is a good twist on that i mean like listen like he was appearing on things like you know uh larry king live talking to tom brokaw uh, there's all kinds of things there that uh you know so he was amongst the you know the mount rushmore of old white guys talking about ufos at this time definitely he was uh i mean look the the skeptical society has a whole award named after him which i think is kind of mixed place but that's another kind of conversation to have later on sure I, yeah i <sighs> I think there's, and touching on what you were just saying, like, I think there's something um, uh, about healthy skepticism. Like, it's good to have a healthy amount of skepticism, but I feel like it's almost like nihilistic when it comes to to the way that class, class handles things. I can't disagree with you there. So he wrote six books about UFOs, and he wrote other books about other subjects, but six about UFOs, including what aimed at children, including 1974, as UFOs explained. And you and I both read 1980, his 1980 book, UFOs, The Public Deceived, and it's such a weird book because the first like 50 pages are all about the 1978 release of formerly classified study papers about UFOs and how everyone actually distorted the evidence presented. Reading it in the future, it seems so weird because a lot of the stuff has has still not been explained. And going back through all these articles, just as an aside, it's been fun to see a lot of the theories that people had. For example, one of the theories from a person at a, at the MUFON symposium he was at, that class was at, was talking about how in 15 years, and this was in 1991, in 15 years, the polar, uh, the polar ice caps would melt because of a polar shift. And he was adamant about this. And of course, as we know, that didn't happen. Or that did was it? was a big topic in the 90s that the, there'd be like a, yeah, a polar a shift. shift. Yeah. yeah. Like and in, the, mag- kind of in for- the magnetism. We kind of forgot about it because of all the other problems we have. <laughs> I mean, in terms of like what what is ranked as a, uh, an immediate concern in the year 2023, I don't think that the polar shifts are making the top 10 probably. Probably not. Not anymore. So, yeah, like the weird thing about class is that he goes back to the notion um, and backs the idea that a lot of these documents were secret because of the fact that like this was a cover for Cold War issues and that the need for secrecy was in order to keep down sensitive technological areas like, you know, using radars to detect Soviet threats. Um, so I think that's an interesting framing device. I don't n- think it necessarily explains all of the documents, but it no, could explain but he's not a portion wrong. of them. Yeah, he's not wrong because there was a reason to be secret at that time. The Cold War was going on and went on for quite a while. Yeah, so I think maybe a, a portion of that, of those documents that are still redacted as far as I know, and still classified um, uh, cover that section of things. But I mean, there's a lot there, too, that is uncovered that doesn't point to a Cold War issue. So, yeah, um, yeah and, just, and like you said, and, and 
And you've mentioned that people were trying to get him to look bad. So they try to trick him often with, with things they sent him. Which yeah, so that's actually another like part tests. of the book is that he just he just gets hit with all of these like people tried to deceive me and it didn't work, haha kind of things. And just it reads like a very petty laundry list of problems. Like it's like a really sh- shitty like paranormal Dave Barry. I can see what you mean there. He did so. The, like I said before, he was cantankerous. He was confrontational. But looking at the videos of him talking now. He seems almost quaint compared to what's happening in the world today with social media. And I was going to say like the, scre- the screeching howler monkey way yeah, of, he, of yelling on social media. Yeah, he's he's quite reserved if you look at him from this point of view. But back then, he was very confrontational. I was going to say also, like relatively speaking, I think that he was quite confrontational. And Heineck at one point had said that the only reason that people believe in what Philip J. Class has to say is because of the fact that he is a good debater. Yeah, and that's important in his in his line of well, quote unquote, work. It was more of a hobby at this point, but it was an, an all encompassing hobby. I miss I miss the era of good debates. Like we we covered this previously, but the Carl Sagan, Jalen Hynek debates, like the you know, I, I miss those those public symposiums, those public forums where people could just slug it out in a civilized manner and just um, call each other very interesting names while yeah. trying to refute um, uh, the other side's quote unquote evidence. Well, I mean, and this we'll we'll get to to his relationship with some of the prominent ufologists at the time throughout this episode. But, you know, he had a lot of confrontations with people like Stanton Freeman, Bruce Maccabee, all these prominent ufologists of the time, Kevin Randall. Uh, we've watched some great videos of him on Larry King and on Nightline talking to these people. And it's always kind of fun to see their interaction because in a lot of the articles I read as well, they kind of were friends too. Yeah, I mean, there's... It's like it's a weird thing. Yeah, it's sort of like a, a boxing or UFC match where they beat the hell at each other in the ring. But then after, you know, they go have a beer sometimes. And sometimes they still hate each other. So I... Uh, yeah, you just mentioned Bruce McAmey as an aside, right? He, um, you know, is a proponent of the Gulf Breeze. Um, That's... So yeah. let's, not, let's not talk about that. Um, well, yeah, but... Well, no, we have to because then, you know, you're kind of hiding from facts where class was completely right about something and the ufologist who's prominent and tries to push his theories was completely wrong. And it just goes to show anybody could be fooled. Even I was going to say like so-called a like, clock is right twice a day, right? That Okay, I guess you can look at it that way. <laughs> uh, let's talk about putting some money on the table, Angel. Let's talk about his $10,000 bet, right? So, Which was a lot in, of money back then. It was. So he started this in the mid-60s. And then so uh, in 74, um, this is the offer that he had thrown out there. So Class agrees to pay the second party the sum of $10,000 within 30 days after any of the following occur. A, any crash spacecraft or major piece of a spacecraft is found to be clearly of extraterrestrial origin by the United States National Academy of Sciences. Or B, the National Academy of Sciences announces that it has examined other evidence which conclusively proves that Earth has been visited by extraterrestrial craft in the 20th century. Or C, bona fide extraterrestrial visitor born on a celestial body other than the Earth appears live before the General Assembly of the UN or on a national television program. The party accepting this offer pays class $100 a year for a maximum of 10 years. Each year, none of these things occur. Now, Angelo, Philip J. Class would be the kind of guy, if we look at C, to say, listen, like, actually, technically, since... Um, the alien was born on a spaceship and on a celestial body that I'm not paying out. Right. He I seems doubt like a nitpicky he would guy. do that. No, I, I think he would have followed through. This never happened. And he was so confident about it that he was willing to, you know, get some money from it. Well, yeah. So class made this offer to people like Frank Edwards, the author of flying saucers, serious business. Um, <laughs> also John G. Fuller of uh, Exeter fame, Jalen Hynek and James Harder. And then, you know, um, so in the 80s, uh, with the MJ-12 documents, Class and Stanton Freeman go back and forth. Uh, and who was right like, about the, the, these documents, Brian? Let, let they were both you say. right. Well, no, but the, the fact that the MJ-12 documents are complete trash, who was correct? Philip J. Class. Okay, perfect. Just, just letting you, he, he was right more than just twice a day. In all of his decades of experience... I think so far I we think. have two, right? So that's two, two times a day right now. We'll see how this goes because okay. we're going to get into a couple of other things. So in the back of the uh, book, UFOs, the public deceived um, in the appendix, he has 10 principles listed. I off. love so these Angela, principles, Brian. Sorry. I love these principles. Okay. So let's go through them, right? So you want to read the first one? 
yeah, ufological. I love, I have trouble saying ufological sometimes, but it's a great word. So ufological principle one, basically honest and intelligent persons who are suddenly exposed to a brief unexpected event, especially one that involves an unfamiliar object may be grossly inaccurate in trying to describe precisely what they have seen. I 100% agree with this sentiment. Okay, so I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Something extraordinary happens to you. Wouldn't you uh, zero in on the non-mundane nature of something? Well, yes. The thing is, is how do I know what I'm describing? We've talked about this before on Double Density where I'll be somewhere out out and about in a car and a train or whatever. And I look to the sky and I see something that seems really odd. And depending on the angle I'm looking at it, if I don't look at it for long enough or something happens where I get distracted and I don't see it anymore, I would have thought I saw something really weird. Luckily, in most cases when that happened, I've been able to keep looking at it a little longer. I'll determine, oh, it's a hot air balloon, which is something I rarely see. So it messes with my brain in thinking that it's something odd. If I hadn't seen it for long enough, in my mind, it would have been a UFO or something like a blimp flying or that really interesting effect when you're driving at one certain speed and looking at something in the sky from a specific angle. It looks like it's not moving. Have you ever had that happen to you? I sure have. But okay, yeah. so the idea here is that like you're um it's kind of like an after the event kind of speculation here, right? So what I'm talking about is an inaccuracy in trying to describe the thing, not what the thing actually is, though. That's the well, first yeah. point. Well, yeah. And that's the point is that people will place their own sort of ideas on things that they saw when they're going back in their memory. And we know memory is terrible. All right, let's move on and see that we're, we're not doing this. So ufological principle two, <laughs> despite the intrinsic limitations of human perception when exposed to brief, unexpected, unusual events, some details required, recalled by the observer may be reasonably accurate. The problem facing the UFO investigator is to try to distinguish between those details that are accurate and those that are grossly inaccurate. This may be impossible until the true identity of the UFO can be determined. In some cases, this poses an insoluble problem. I don't necessarily... Well, it riffs off the first one, so you don't agree with the first one, so you're not going to agree with this one. Well, I was going to say, like, I agree with the idea here that, like, um, you know, memory being fallible is an issue that all human beings go through, right? Um, I don't know if it's impossible until the true identity of the UFO can be determined. Yeah, I, think I don't we agree can with zero that. In, we can zero in on whether or not it is threshold-based, right? We can classify things in certain ways. Um, but he's, he's dealing with things in absolute terms, and I think that's a huge issue that he does, right? Yes, that's definitely one of the problems I have with his approach to to skepticism. But I feel like he's sort of siding on the uh, side of the ufologist here in that they do have an uphill battle to cl- uh, uphill climb to fight. What's the saying there? You know, they, they have a problem when they're trying to prove what they've hypothesized in terms of UFOs. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, so let's move on to number three. If a person observing an unusual or unfamiliar object concludes it is probably a spaceship from another world, he can readily adduce that the object is reacting to his presence or actions, when in reality there's absolutely no cause-effect relationship. So this is sort of like the whole spotlight effect we have, right? When you're, let's say you're out and about in public and you are wearing something odd or whatever, you're going to think everybody's noticing you, whereas most people really don't care. So in this case, you're watching something in the sky and it, you think it's reacting to you when actually it's just going about its business and it doesn't care about you. But what about those things, those incidents where there is like a, a physical thing, like, you know, like the Falcon Lake, for example, right? Where uh, the, the... There is an actual cause-effect relationship there. Okay, that's... I mean, those are few and far between, though. Most of the time... Well, what I'm saying is that those exist in time, though, too, right? Yeah, like, and, you know, for Once example... Again, this, is, people, this is dealing in absolutist terms, which I think is is a huge problem because there's there's degrees to this. Well, I mean, it's usually Venus, Brian. <laughs> oh, we're going to play that game today. Oh, nice, yeah. okay. And Swamp Venus Gas. always looks like it's following you. Can't forget Swamp Gas, either. For sure. So, uh, ufological principle four, news media that give great prominence to a UFO report when it is first received subsequently devote little if any space or time to reporting a prosaic explanation, there it is again, for the case after the facts are uncovered. Now, this is true of everything. Not yeah, just I mean, UFO incidents, but this is true of literally everything. I think this is where you go off on the lamestream media, right, Brian? Uh, no, but I, like, listen, like, I I don't disagree with this, that like the, the more mundane results don't make for as excellent of a news piece as the splashy kind of interesting um, original 
piece of content that has a mystery underlying. Yeah, this is why every 90s UFO story on local news is accompanied by, as long as it's on Fox, is accompanied by the uh, X-Files music in the background. Exactly. I mean, and like, then that's, all that's other, a, other networks have like a generic version of that song. It's a, this is a decades old problem that doesn't necessarily just touch you, you know, UFOs, but just most pieces of, of meteor news in general. So, we, you know, we should go back of, and look at all those news stories and, and count how many times those stories start with. Could it be Little Green Men? Right, that's what I'm they all. Start I'm with. sure there's a website doing that. We'll have to look into that. If not, we'll have to we'll have to like surface a couple. All right, Angelo, give me number five. No human observer, including experienced flight crews, can accurately estimate either the distance, altitude, or the size of an unfamiliar object in the sky unless it is in very close proximity to a familiar object whose size or altitude is known. I really agree with this because okay, so it's I, human nature. I agree with some of this, right? But what about behaviors uh, when you see something doing something different in the sky that cannot be accounted for as easily, though? You know, a UFO zigzagging, for example. Well, yeah, that that's something that can be odd, but it could also be just the angle you're looking at. I go back to the airplane that's in the sky and not moving, right? It depends on how you're But I'm you're talking about like drastic movement that don't have um, known uh, ways of behavior. Like, are you talking like the, the, the Tic Tac video, sort of? Yeah, I'm just talking about any kind of fast-moving object that like moves in unnatural kind of ways that cannot be explained by science readily. Yeah, I mean, we can't explain that. And that's the thing, though. We, we have to take a moment and say, well, I'm not sure what that could be. The thing is, is that people, when they're observing, they tr- like to make proclamations that, oh, it was a thousand feet across and I know it was just half a mile away. They don't know that. You, If something's in the sky, you and I both have said this before, if something's in the sky and you take a picture of it with no context, I have no idea what I'm looking no, at. No, yeah, I definitely agree with that. But I'm just saying like in in motion, right? Because we're talking about pictures, you know, that are static, frozen time, but I'm talking about like behaviors and movements that cannot be explained. Yeah. So once again, I think that like there's a bit of a nuance there that in these absolute terms does not work out quite well. I mean, I, I hope like when he was writing something of this, uh, he was hoping for a day when everybody in the world had high resolution cameras in their pocket to be able to <laughs> capture these UFOs. Unfortunately, it's still, still not the case. Nobody has cameras on them all the time because there's no UFO videos coming out that are actually viable. Oh, wait. Well, let's, we could talk about that later. Uh, <laughs> principle number six. Rob's audience news. is hating me right now. I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, They're going to hate listen to Double Density. Please come join us. Yes, please, please come and join us just to hate listen to us. That's definitely the, the kind of audience we want to yes, encourage. Yes, we love them. Principle number six, once news coverage leads to the public to believe the UFOs may be in the vicinity, there are numerous natural and man-made objects which, especially when seen at night, can take on unusual characteristics in the mind of hopeful viewers. The UFO reports, uh, in turn, add to the mass excitement, which encourages still more observers to watch the UFOs. The situation feeds upon itself until such times the media lose interest in the subject, then the flap quickly runs out of stream. He's so describing human nature. Yeah, and I, I have a problem a bit with this one because... That's going to happen when there's a flap. But the problem is if he applies this ufological principle, he's going he's gonna to throw out everything that's happening during a so-called UFO flap where some of it might actually be true and people are actually seeing things. And then a lot of it will be garbage. Just sort of like, you know, when, when you announce somebody's, when you show somebody's picture and they're, they're looking for them, you're going to get all kinds of calls flooding in of people who say they saw them, but they didn't actually see them. I mean, like, let's take the the Boston bomber for example. Yeah, right? yeah, that's what the happens whole, when you get you know, Reddit, Reddit on the case. Detective meme kind of was born out of that. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I think that like, but there were some credible reports too. So I think that like, it's actually the job of an investigator to like drill down and not to be an absolutist in terms of ignoring, you know, quote unquote like copycat reports either, right? Yeah, that becomes a problem. Uh, now, right. looking at ufological principle number seven, in attempting to determine whether a UFO report is a hoax, an investigator should rely on physical evidence or the lack of where evidence should exist and should not depend on character endorsements of principles involved. That's one of the major problems with all of ufology is that there is a huge lack of actual physical evidence. I think so, too. I think that uh, there are uh, pieces of evidence exist you know i was just talking about um chocolate lake for example right like i think yeah. that like there there are some things like that that do exist very rarely but still exist um i do find it interesting that he discounts the human element of people like he was saying that like humans um and we've talked about memory being fallible but at some point like at the core of something there does 
happen to be kernels of truth or degrees of truth. Once again, it's not whether or not it's not a binary. It's not like, yes, this person is a liar. No, this person is truthful. I think that there are various degrees in which you need to note um, what the person is saying in order to gauge whether or not you trust them. I think that's just human nature once again. Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to the first ufological principle, right? Where if somebody sees something extraordinary, they they may have trouble with it. And I've always said that I don't think... I. Th- there's very few people that report UFOs that go into it lying. They're people that saw something weird and they may misconstrue what they saw. The problem happens is and because of popular culture, a lot of them jump to the conclusion that it was aliens. When, let's face it, most of the time it's not aliens, if not ever. Oh, you play that game. All right. Well, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of goes into principle number eight, the inability of even experienced investigators to fully and positively explain a UFO report for lack of sufficient information, even after a rigorous effort, does not really provide evidence to support the hypothesis that spaceships from other worlds are visiting Earth. Interesting. Interesting that he says that. Yeah, well, he's right. <laughs> we, we can't be sure. We can't just jump to the conclusion that because we don't know what we're seeing, oh, yeah, it's aliens. It could be some hobbyist floating a balloon and then you'll scramble jets and then shoot it down at the cost of half a million dollars per. But I do think that it is narrow minded in the way that that is um, perceived a little bit. Yeah. It, it comes back to his cantankerous nature yeah. of, just, which I think is a perfect old timey description of him. I can picture him at his typewriter because this is pre PCs typing this out with a big smile on his face saying, Oh, this will really get them going. Because I think most of the time, that's what he was aiming for, to get people going. Well, for sure, he's writing letters to the FBI about jail and Hynek. Like, he's just... He oh, wait till we get to the other letter that he wrote to oh, our yes, Canadian that, government. Yeah, That'll more, be great. A way more infamous letter, yeah. Um, all right, so uh, give me principle number nine. You. So when a light is sighted in the night skies that is believed to be UFO, and this is reported on a radar to a radar operator who is asked to search his scope for an unknown target... Almost invariably, an unknown target will be found. Conversely, if an unusual target is spotted on a radar scope at night that is suspected of being a UFO, an observer is dispatched or asked to search for a light in the sky. Almost invariable, a visual sighting will be made. Sure, a light is a light. Yeah, and you're going to see something if something's there, but yeah. you can't explain I mean, like, what it is. I, I think like you can even strip the the comment about it being a UFO, right? It's just it exists. Something yeah. exists. And I think that's a a common misconception that people have about radar is that it can tell if something's doing like crazy maneuvers. It really can't. It kind of just can tell if something's there and then it's not. Yeah, exactly. Well, in this case, like it is a binary. Yes or no. It's there or not there. Yeah. The descriptor of what it is, though, on the other hand, is is another issue entirely, right? Yeah. Now, I love number 10 because he's like kind of throwing shade at people. Yeah. (laughs) Many UFO cases seem puzzling and unexplainable simply because investigators have failed to devote a sufficiently rigorous effort to the investigation. They're not working hard enough, Brian. (laughs) Uh, If only he had known the chaos and the willingness to dig deep that the Internet has provided in terms of like UFO communities um, coming together and pulling things apart. I feel like we don't have a Philip class these days, really. No, and I think that's I'm fine with that. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> we can talk about the nature of skepticism later, but I'm fine with that. I feel there are two, like right now, the UFO believers being prominent on media far outweigh the skeptics, like by a long shot. I'd agree with that. And also the uh, character of these people. I mean, you and I talk about UFO grifters all the time, right? Like there's way the too Stevie many Greers. Yeah. Like we did, uh, Rob and I did an episode on Stan Romanek a little while ago. That He's you know, the worst, the, I would say, the, in well, many yes, regards. Multiple times the worst. Uh, filmmaker uh, Jeremy Fornames as Rob loves to call him, right? Uh, him yeah, too. Yeah, a little and, full of himself. Yes, a, a little filmmaker. bit. Listen, if you start if you start a documentary about someone else with like uh, your own uh, dramatized history, like that's a little weird to me. I agree. So let's talk about some of his claims or his famous cases. So we talked about the ten thousand uh, dollars, but he also made the offer to the FBI for the ten thousand um, bucks. They don't have time for that. No. Well, that's the thing, right? So he offered a $10,000 to anyone who's abducted to report it to the FBI and have the FBI investigate it. So he can do this safely because he knows that the threshold to get the FBI to investigate something is, is quite high. Especially when it's aliens. Other more, uh, quote unquote, like mundane crimes, right? Like that's, yeah. that's the issue at hand is that the threshold to get them interested um, is so much higher than, than other cases that it's quite easy for him to say, hey, you know, here's 10,000 bucks gangling in the air for this. What if somebody said, oh, uh, I know somebody who's gone missing. Well, the FBI would investigate that and then quickly add, I think it was aliens. Would that have counted? 
I would think that the FBI would investigate it a little tiny bit. They'd make a couple of phone calls. Yeah. So maybe they could win $10,000 that way. Time for you they, to travel back in time and uh, attempt that one, Brian. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and just pop in. Okay, perfect. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so this is a quote from a 1996 PBS Nova interview. Nearly 30 years of searching, investigating famous cases. I've yet to find one that cannot be explained in down-to-earth prosaic terms. Once again, an absolutist. Yeah, I don't like that because there are things that you have to say, I don't know. I just don't know. Right. Like the whole, I mean, this is, this is after the fact, but even for me, like seeing some of the stuff we've seen lately with the military technology and the, you know, like the Tic Tac and things like that. I don't know what they saw. It could have been a multitude of things, but I don't want to for sure say what it is because you can't, it, I don't think it's aliens or, uh, well, what are the ones we call like that live underwater, <laughs> like uh, ultra terrestrians? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's that either. I, I honestly think it's either equipment error or just something weird that was stuck on their, on their uh, scanners. But I don't think it was aliens of any kind, but I could be wrong. That's, that's the important thing, right? Is you have to be willing to be wrong, to be a skeptic. And some, some people are not willing to be wrong. And the same thing goes for ufologists. Like they're stuck in their ways. Like did Bruce Maccabee ever say that the Gulf breeze incident was like a hoax? No, there's a lot of doubling down there. Yeah. See, so that, that's a problem sometimes. So let's talk about the reason I want to do this episode. And that is why is Philip J class hated Angela. And I'm getting very comfortable here with my microphone because this is the good part of the show. <laughs> the rest has not been good, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, he's the classic debunker. The skeptic who won't ignore anything that goes against the narrative. Who will and, ignore, you mean? Well, well, yeah, he'll, sorry, yes. Who, who, who yes, who will ignore. See, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm like. Fallible human I, being. I'm uh, projecting what I think a good skeptic should do onto, <laughs> onto class. Because you shouldn't ignore evidence that goes against your thinking. Because that's, that's the problem we have with most people that don't want to, that argue things and don't look at both sides. Yeah, so I, I mean, think the problem is there's that a he, certain there's a certain type of both sides, though, right? Like both sides of like the flat Earth debate are not equal. Well, no, obviously the Earth is flat. We know this. The ice walls that the FBI, who we talked about a bunch in this episode, are guarding, right? That's that's quite real to me. People are going to think you're serious, but that's I okay. know. I'm sure um, they know who you are. They've listened to you sometimes. You've been on the show before. I have, yeah. So you know, in his books and in his speeches and in his interviews, he like he gives off the vibe of a man who's like beneath the subject and when really like he's made his bones in this like if he just stuck to aviation weekly you and i wouldn't be here talking about him no not at all and i i get that vibe as well i didn't feel it at first but then once you've pointed it out it's like yeah he kind of sort of he's like almost like a a self-hating ufologist yeah, like he doesn't want to be there all the time. And it's kind of annoying. Like you, you watch the interviews that he, he gives, like the Larry, da like the, I keep wanting the Larry to say David. Larry David, <laughs> yeah. the Larry King one. And it's just, he, he clearly does not want to be there. He seems annoyed, but he'll still be there. Although, um, the, uh, War of the Worlds article gave me from 1991, I think it's September, 1991. Yeah. He, uh, 1990, he did 1991. Yeah. Yeah. He did seem to have a good time at <laughs> that place. Yeah. Right? People were stopping him and adoring him. That's the weird thing, right? Like they, they loved him and hated him all at the same time. It is and definitely I, I like a weird dichotomy. Yeah. I kind of think that's, it's kind of fun. Another issue that I have with class is that he often has like very circular thinking. Like he'll say like people can't be abducted because UFOs don't exist. So if UFOs don't exist, then people can't be abducted. Yeah. That's uh, like a, uh, like he uses very circular reasoning to shut things down, which is why he, in his like quote, where he says, you know, like I've in 30 years of searching, I haven't spent anything because of the fact that like he uses this, this framework of thinking that doesn't actually make sense. I do find it fun when he, when him and one of the people he argues with also agree on a certain point. Like there's, there's a Larry King video of him arguing with Kevin Randall, but ultimately they both really agree on the alien abduction phenomenon. They do in theory, but I mean, like, it's kind of like the, the, yeah. Cause they talk about, you know, cause Kevin Randall uh, do, does believe that there's, you know, uh, uh, retrieved crash UFO and UFO occupants hanging but then out. He, yeah. But then he goes and says that all alien abductions are sleep paralysis, which I kind of agree with. Well, you are a victim of sleep paralysis. So yes, I've had, I've dealt with this. So I kind of know, I can see how someone who doesn't know what sleep paralysis is would misconstrue it as an alien abducting them. And yeah. in the past it was demons. Because yeah, but I, I do, I do yet. believe that there are cases where n neither explanation works too. Right. So, it, you know, it's a little bit, more of once again, like gradients. In um, those so, cases, they're hoaxes. 
<laughs> of course. So yeah. a class is also good at false equivalency. So um, in an interview with George Knapp, he gave, and this is like a TV interview in a, you know, at a TV station, he gave the analogy of if a TV camera failed and they took it to the camera repair guy at the station and the repair person said it was, quote unquote, evil spirits, you would fire them, right? So I think it's a super irresponsible line of thinking. Like he says, you have to look for explanations within known theory in order for things to make sense. And I don't quite, I don't agree with that. No, it makes no sense that it, I, I, it's, you know, it's a logical fallacy and he's, he's falling into that trap, which skeptics are supposed to strive to fight against logical fallacies, which ends up being a lot of the problems. Another logical fallacy was the king of was the ad hominem, right? And there's an article where Don Ecker talks about how he's, the king of the ad hominem, our friend Philip J. Class. I agree. So the problem here is that, like, so well, once again, like another um, side to his hypocrisy is that he says you should never trust people and trust the evidence, and then does nothing but attack the person. That's that becomes a, a problem, right? That, yeah, like you're you're talking about um, Don Ecker, um, you know, mailing uh, the University of Nebraska and calling them up. Well, so. That's the thing, right? There was there was also a time where where Don Ecker uh, accused class of uh, equating ufologists to communists, uh, which and it's something he explains in the skeptic article where he talks about how he was actually misquoted about that. So he never actually equated them to communism, but he sort of tried to scare off the one of the administrators at the university from having ufologists come talk by sort of equating them to communists, but not really. It's just something that kind of stayed on the mind of ufologists is how class was unscrupulous in trying to get ufologists like if it, if it had like deplatformed at the time, right? Like that, that was their platform. There was no Twitter. There was no uh, Instagram for these people to make, make their voices heard. So What's the best way to get them to not talk? That would be not allow them to actually speak in public at these university conferences. Let us talk about the most infamous um, incident <laughs> of this. And this is the part where I think I um, hold the most anger towards Philip J. Class. The man was a snitch, Angelo. And you know me. I fucking hate snitches, my friend. They get stitches. So let us talk about Stan from your time Freeman, in right? prison, Brian. Let us talk about Stan Freeman. So Stan, I, I, so Stan Friedman is probably one of my favorite ufologists. He's, despite the MJ-12 stuff. Let's be honest, like that was kind of a misfire, but like there's a lot of stuff there that like um, he was, was a, he was a good investigator. Yeah, and a good dude. He seemed like somebody you'd want to talk to. And it did seem like, apart from what we're going to talk about now, him and class did have a decent relationship. I mean, there was, there was professional disdain, but I don't feel like they would throw chairs at each other, right? No, this was There's no like Hell in a Cell match between these two. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so Stan Freeman wants to move from the States to the Canadian Maritimes in the early 80s. And in 1980, Philip <laughs> J. Class wrote a letter to the National Research um, to the National Research Office of Canada mentioning that Freeman was moving there and told them to start expecting Freeman to begin to say that the Canadian government was in the middle of a UFO cover-up because of how shoddy the UFO filing system report. So that's that's some fucking that's some jerk shit, right? So I'm gonna quote from the August 15th, 1980 letter. So Angela, sit down. I'm, I'm sitting here this. You I, I don't record standing, Brian. Dear Dr. McNamara, I regret that I must bring bad tidings in respect to your UFO responsibilities, but trust like the proverbial messenger, I shall not be executed for doing so. I have reason to believe that Canada will soon gain a quote unquote noted ufologist, full-time UFO lecturer of the snake oil salesman, salesman variety who will soon move to Canada to become its chief UFO guru. I'm not sure where he will take up residence, but I can assure you that you and your associates will be publicly accused of a UFO government or quote unquote cosmic cover up, as he's prone to say, that dwarfs the Watergate scandal. Angelo, imagine getting so angry that you send another nation's government a letter about someone you dislike to try and get them barred from entering the country and moving there. Well, obviously it didn't work. We know that he he lived out his remaining days here in Canada. Uh, it's kind of bonkers. I, I had no idea this had happened. And when I read this, it really sort of soured my thought of class. And I wonder, and so this was from 1980. I wonder if they ever sort of reconciled that. 
and well, I mean, they were they, were, they on, were friends after that, right? I mean, they were friendly, right? But the letter was only found out because in the letter itself, it also mentions that you know that the, the doctor McNamara should spread this amongst his colleagues, but not let Stan Freeman know of its existence, which is problematic. Yeah, it was a bit of a like. So this is really snitchy. This is awful snitch behavior, Angel, and I just you can't forgive it. Also, like in the letter, there's a mention of Freeman's ego, which is rather ironic, given class's own issues. Re in response or in respect to his ego. Yeah, it's just because he's on one side of the UFO argument doesn't mean he's right or wrong. And it's not like he's going to bring down the Canadian government. I, I, from what I know, I don't think he ever really was problematic living here. No, there was no issues um, involving him locally in the Maritimes or nationally. So, he's just you know, a friendly guy. He was just, I, I have, yeah. I have again, apart from the MJ 12 thing, which, you know, people are wrong sometimes, uh, you and I could be wrong sometimes too, rarely. But he seemed like a down-to-earth, no pun intended, really interested in what he was trying to say. Not Definitely not selling snake oil. I don't think he was busy out there really trying to hustle and make tons of money off of this. It was just something he was interested in. You mean you're and not yes. firing off um, you know, flashlights in the sky a la uh, Stephen Greer to get people to pay you thousands of dollars for a weekend? That's it. He all of his work in ufology never hurt anybody. He never tried to steal anybody's money apart from maybe selling his books and his lectures. But again, that's not like Stephen Greer level uh, grifting. I think that's, you know, I think he also came from a, from a very scientific basis, given his scientific background. Right? So I think that like that is um, an interesting component to looking at a lot of the evidence and cases that Stan Freeman had gone through. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that adds some credibility to his line of thinking, too. He had a background in nuclear physics, I believe, a master's Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like, class really gave debunkers a real bad name, right? Uh, if anything, I would call him a debungler. <laughs> because he just mislabels things left and right. I think it's a huge issue with all of the cases that we looked at and all of the kind of evidence. He loves to, once again, work within that limited time frame of, of uh, what is believable, right? That theoretical framework of what is believable within known quantities, which is problematic. I'd say like you and I are different flavors of skeptics, but we're always willing to contend when we're not sure of something like you said this in this episode. And I'll say the same. Like I am very ready to admit when I don't know something. That's really important for a skeptic to have that in their back pocket. And same thing for ufologists. That's there's, like I said, problems on both sides of the argument where people are so stuck in their ways and there's no way they could ever believe that they're wrong about something, which is we're wrong about things all the time. Yeah, and I think there's the question of bias, right? So class's own approach of everything must have an earthly answer, I think, reveals a large um, degree of bias on his behalf, which is kind of ironic given how, like, quote unquote, like, objective he's trying to be. Like, there's this weird inherent paradox that that operates there that's super annoying. That becomes, again, yeah, he, he comes from a sort of superiority in saying he knows what's the right answer. And again, we keep saying it. Not everybody knows the right answer because there's so many possibilities. When it comes to UFOs, it's just that's it's there in the word unknown, like un unidentified. We don't know what we're looking at. And I so much prefer it to UAP. Have we mentioned how much UAP sucks? That's no, we haven't. Term. But yeah, the word the term UAP is garbage. I hate it. And it reminds me of all of the and we've talked about this on, on our own show, too. Like the idea here that UAP is kind of like the more like official, uh, you know, to the Stars Academy is kind of like um, discourse happening versus UFO folkloric. Well, it's funny because. In this time period where class operated, UFO was the more, let's say, proper term versus flying saucer or things like that. Which right? is more colloquial. Yeah, I agree. exactly. So and now and what, UFO has fallen to that. What impact has Philip J. Class left on ufology, do you think? Well, he did lay out some good rules for how to look at UFOs and how to understand what people are thinking when it comes to them and how to make sure you approach it from a, a skeptical viewpoint. I think he went too far sometimes. I think he tried to keep things in a way that always could be explained where there's certain things you can't explain. There's no harm in saying, I'm not sure. Whereas when he first started, went to the outlandish efforts of trying to explain it with ball lightning and plasma and things that really didn't even exist either. So that becomes a problem. I think that class makes for a good whipping boy for people who love to point out that skeptics are just a bunch of fucking losers. Like, I think that like, um, he's kind of like the avatar for all that is wrong about skepticism. And I don't disagree with that. But that becomes a problem because if that 
as how people feel, they end up not being skeptical and just believing whatever gets shoveled their way. Yeah, we but have to look at it's a question of degrees, right? Yeah, we ha- exactly. And I think he's like a 12 on a scale of 10. You need to be like <laughs> an, a seven to an eight or a nine so that you don't get too stuck. Like I th- there's that, that saying is like, you want to be open-minded, but not so, not so much as your whole brain falls out. Right. Trust, but verify, right? So Angelo, is Philip J. Class a psyop? I really doubt it. That's another conspiracy theory that people tried to lay at him and shoot his way to say, to find a way to disprove him, let's say. But yeah, because the question does come up uh, in a lot of the interviews that I read and watched with class, the, you know, they ask him if he's on the take. And uh, is it possible? I don't think so. But here is a thought, Angelo. So we talked earlier about the the FBI, right? So the FBI decides to screw up class's life after he drops some sensitive info on Aviation Week. So they get him to agree to disseminate information on their behalf to shut down any kind of like valid UFO discourse in exchange for not making his life a living hell because of what he um, did in 57. So to pull a class, that's a believable terrestrial based theory, right? You can't prove it didn't happen. You're not wrong. And it's actually a really good plausible theory. I personally do not believe it. No. And then uh, he would have kept doing it forever. Yeah, he's he also died. not a very effective um, skeptic uh, in certain ways, right? He wasn't, he was a good debater, good public persona, knew how to speak, but definitely not um, um, engaging with the talking points as much. Yeah. And look, and ultimately, I still think he was important in the world of skepticism towards UFO. Did he have faults? For sure. Definitely. And he, and they were kind of emphasized, especially when it came to him trying to prove everything with some sort of prosaic response. That becomes a problem. I feel like skeptics nowadays are a little more open to sort of just saying, I don't know, which is a really good, valid answer. You and I have talked about this. Like, I think our lo- like you're uh, more skeptical than I am, right? But we're still more on the rational side of things let's say like we're not you know jumping into every um conspiracy theory and ufo report believing it's real like we want to believe it's real but we don't necessarily know if it's real exactly and i think we're all about the discourse right we'd rather have the conversation and figure things out versus immediately shutting down the conversation by like saying like no you're wrong this is why using a framework that doesn't necessarily apply to this right i agree so angelo i decided to bring a a little bit of some double density flavor into this episode (laughs) So I asked ChatGBT to write a short paragraph about Our Strange Skies as if failed J-Class were critiquing it, and it goes as follows. As a well-known UFO researcher and skeptic, I find it concerning that Rob Christofferson's Our Strange Skies podcast fails to make a more critical approach when evaluating alleged UFO sightings and encounters. By not immediately dismissing every UFO story, Christofferson is contributing to the spread of unfounded claims and pseudoscientific beliefs. It is essential to approach these claims with a healthy dose of skepticism and a rigorous scientific mindset to separate fact from fiction. Failure to do so risks perpetuating myths and misinformation that only serve to obscure the truth about these phenomena. Wow, I couldn't have said it better myself, Brian. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah we, we Trojan horsed our way in here, right? So Rob was nice enough to invite us over and then we just shit all over him. Yeah, just, he's GPT. wrong about everything, guys. He's wrong about everything. <laughs> no, he, he puts together uh, amazing episodes. I'm so glad that everyone... Um, is paying attention and listening to them. So, Angela, do you recant your earlier statement about Philip J. Class not being a bad guy? Look, in reviewing it, I, I still don't think he had horrible intentions at heart, except for a few. I mean, I guess, you know, the evidence is there that he could be a bit of a jerk sometimes in trying to get basically Stanton Freeman practically deported from Canada or yeah, denied entry. from entering. Yeah, that that is, that, th- that is pretty bad. And the evidence is there. This is not made up. But in some ways, he was really good at pointing out the flaws in some ufologists thinking. So just like anybody else, him, he was flawed. He I know you hate piss. him, Brian. I know you hate he him. He should rest in piss. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> well, I'm glad that we, we've, uh, you know, reached consensus. I obviously, um, have added more hate to my arsenal, um, about him, especially the, the Stan Friedman stuff. Uh, that's just despicable. And, you know, if you're to spend your time running letters, like that then you probably need a new hobby let's be honest same i mean though like same thing i think if on the flip side if i want to play devil's advocate same thing with people who are into ufos who want to believe every single piece of information that that he's out there right so that's let's just get absolutes. we're not dealing in absolutes we're dealing in gradients we're dealing in degrees and any kind of of extremism you know on either side of things is is unhealthy trust but verify like you said exactly so angela you can find the our strange guys podcast on most podcasting apps you can head on over to ourstrangeguys.com to find all the episodes Rob has lovingly put together, as well as merch and social media links. You can find us at doubledensity.net. So Angela loves it 
when people fill out the contact form on our website. Go ahead, Angela. Tell them how much you love it. I love it a lot. It's great. We've been getting a lot of feedback lately, and it's always fun to hear. And also, Even the fake um, ones about my computers being upset with me. I was going to say, like, uh, household items around you that are angry with you. Exactly. You can also find us on Twitter at double underscore density and Instagram at double density podcast. If you want to feel the urge to email us, you can do so at double density podcast at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me on Twitter at Brian Hasty, Brian with an I. And Angelo doesn't believe in social media apart from that. Not really. Yeah. So you can actually use the contact form on our website to let him know what he's missing out on. It's weird that I host a, a half tech podcast and I'm no longer really on social media. It's true. You're too busy playing um, video games. Video games are great. Everyone, go play Elden Ring. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Our Strange Skies is a production of Zavid Media. Big thanks to Floats for the theme song and a big thank to Spencer Worth Davis for being the man behind the curtain. And finally, don't forget to look up because even if Phil Class doesn't believe this, you never know what you'll find in Our Strange Skies. Angelo, I'll see you around. See ya. Media.